Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. <clears throat> You're listening to the Sands Pants Network. Home of comedy, <laughs> culture, adventures, and ghosts. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. This is the show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show, we have one of Australia's most well-known currently working authors, originally from Dwelling Up, a small regional town in Western Australia and now based in Fremantle. He has written several novels, the most famous being Jasper Jones, which was adapted into a movie of the same name that he co-wrote the screenplay for, Honey Bee, and most recently Runt, about a girl from an outback town trying to save her family's farm from a greedy landowner with the help of a very special dog. Craig Sylvie, a pleasure to have you. A pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem. I, look, it's exciting. I, I guess it feels weird as I'm saying that, saying most well-known currently working authors. I guess, is it strange sometimes like being one of Australia's most well-known currently working authors? Is that how you feel? <laughs> it's strange to be described as currently working. It's a very kind way to say still alive. <laughs> no, it's it's. I feel enormously blessed, very grateful to write for a vocation, to tour and meet and connect with readers, to tell stories for a living. It's it's wonderful. Right, yeah. Cause, and I did notice, like, especially if you – I was doing some research on you beforehand, and uh, your first novel's 19 years old. That is absolutely crazy to me. 19 and you released Rhubarb. Yeah, I understood fairly quickly in life who I was and what I wanted, and I, I guess I wasted no time in getting to work. I started writing my first novel in my final year of high school and doing notes on that. And, you know, I shooed university just with the intention of writing, not because I thought I knew any better. It was because I was just full of romantic energy and I just wanted to get cracking, basically. And so that's what I did. I I moved out of home and moved to Fremantle in Western Australia, which is where I currently am. And I worked any number of shitty entry-level jobs to fund the time to write. And it took me three years to, to finish my first novel. That's that's what got me on my way. Yeah, look, man, it's wildly impressive. Like, I, I, Just the fact of getting something out that's of any kind at 19, regardless of it being successful or not, like I just, I had no idea what I wanted when I was 19. So I'm very impressed by that. Did you have to like ditch everyone almost as part of that? Did, were people coming with you on that journey or was it kind of a solo thing? I was very discreet about how I worked and and who I confessed my ambitions to. You know, there was a handful of people who knew what I was doing. Everybody sort of external of that thought I was wasting my life, basically. You know, I suppose I just felt a bit unqualified to uh, declare myself to be a writer. 
before I felt as though I had something concrete to, to show for it. And so, you know, when I finally got that breakthrough and got a publishing deal, that was, I suppose, my coming out moment. I had to uh, describe to people what I'd been doing for the last three or four years. And I felt a, a little more comfortable in telling people who I was and, and what I've been up to. Yeah, look, at the ripe old age of 19, you finally <laughs> exploded that's, onto the That's planet. right. I've been living a lie. No, it's wild. Well, actually, so we should maybe start with the book and then we'll jump around from there because we've got to talk about your new book and a whole bunch of other stuff because I am really interested in a lot of it. So I guess let's start with that. So your book of choice for today is? Well, my book of choice, which is my favorite novel, which it's difficult to winnow down mm. because often it can be any number of a trove of treasured novels which are speaking to you at any aspect of your life, I suppose. There's a lot of mm-hmm. books that you tend to go back to and draw comfort or, or wisdom from. But the book that's always resonated with me and has been an evergreen source of maturity and wit and life and love for me is To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. I suppose it's just been a companion across my reading journey. I first read it when I was quite young and I've gone back to it virtually every year to, to read and I've kind of grown up with that book. It's it's a beautiful story. It's stood the test of time. It's It's a classic for a reason and I just adore it. It's as perfect as a novel can be. Right, yeah. As we discussed before the show started, I usually I, I know what the book is coming in, but I thought I'd get a surprise with this one. So that's the first time I've heard your choice as well. No, look, it's it's an amazing book. Also, like straight away, my thought goes to about fifty different things to that in relation to you as well. But like, it was her only novel. So she wrote one novel, right? Well, until the I don't want to say infamous, but the, there's some issues around the more recent one, I believe, which was some question marks about the more recent one. That was her first yeah. novel, and obviously huge fame from that and then she was like i'm done i'm good <laughs> which is i mean it's it's the way to go isn't it you're one and done you write an untouchably brilliant novel i think before you're 35 and then just play a lot of golf what a way to go you know it's a great strat <laughs> people should do that more i'm surprised more people haven't really <laughs> look i'm trying <laughs> yeah. well so like it's interesting to me you see some people have the story of like you know they have to try again and again and again and slowly find their voice over time but she's an example of quite early on grasping how she wanted to kind of say the things she wanted to say. And I guess that straight away can see the parallels with you, with your first book of being 19 and not having attended like university or anything like that to kind of finesse your skills that way. So I guess where did the writing for you come from? Like how did you practice? Was you just writing your own thing or like did you do any short courses or like kind of where did that come from, that ability to write? Well, it was by virtue of reading. You know, my my first love was reading and since I – could do it. You know, I was devouring novels and adventuring through stories. And I suppose that's ultimately what has been my greatest teacher. You know, I've I've learned by immersion, I suppose, and through practice. You know, I was quite young when I came to understand that I could tell my own lies and write my own stories and hand them over to other people to hopefully, potentially go on the same kind of journeys that, that I adored when I read stories. And it was a really infectious thrill for me at that age, and it's never really ebbed. And so I just, I just wrote as a matter of course. I, I, I wrote because it's, it's always been how I process things. You know, elements of behaviour and and culture and humanity that I don't readily understand. You know, I've, I've written to understand myself better, but just for the the joy and the beauty in it. And that's how I've developed a voice. And it's not dissimilar to Harper Lee. I would draw a very long bow between uh, myself and her. But, you know, part of the controversy that was attached to Ghost at a Watchman, which was the novel that was uh, released posthumously, is that it was a precursor to 
to Kill a Mockingbird. It was a very early draft and it was largely a kind of sketchbook for uh, fleshing out who these characters were and it became a springboard to what To Kill a Mockingbird ultimately was. And it's why I had a, a lot of reservations about it being released. I think it sullied her legacy a little bit. I think it's a really shameful thing to have had happened. It should never have been published. There are issues around the consent of its release as well. I, I'm not convinced that she was of sound mind uh, when those contracts were, were drawn up. And so I just think it's 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 a big shame. Yeah, it was very strange because obviously it's the prequel to, to Kill a Mockingbird, so you can see why people would want to try to sell it and how much money they'll make. But, yeah, the story of her being fairly apparent late stage in terms of her old age and uh, not being clear on what exactly was going on and them using – seeming to take advantage of that to release, yeah, what was very much a first draft. It's funny, there's a comedian I know, I made a joke about this before, but the idea of releasing someone's work after they've passed, it's like their drafts and stuff. It's like, don't do that. <laughs> it's like, that's, yes, okay, maybe if they've prepared for their, like realizing what's happening and maybe they've done one novel, but don't keep releasing their draft notes. No one, he's like, don't, no one release any draft jokes I've written if I ever pass away. Which... <laughs> 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 Really sums it up perfectly. Like, it just doesn't seem. Yeah, it's no. it's it's a nightmare, nightmare. And look, you know, she lived, as you say, fifty odd years without any intention of writing any further work or releasing anything that uh, had been prepared beforehand. She was very consistent in that judgment and the fact that it was undermined so late in her life by somebody. It did appear had a lot to financially gain from it. I don't know. It just it, it's very suspicious to me, and yeah, it's just a, it's just a real shame. Mm. No, no, hundred percent, I agree. So, I guess to go back a step as well. So, as we'd already mentioned once, um, you start yeah quite young, and you found this fame quite early on, and then like which is so great because you've had the chance to develop and focus exclusively on your writing as a result. Has there felt some change? And this is kind of relating to Harpley being consistent in her messaging for the last fifty years as well of her life. But have you felt this shift in the? Uh, it's almost probably hard for you to remember because you were so young when the first one came out. But do you, do you feel any pressure? Do you feel anything from the result of having found some fame, which has obviously got a lot of benefits to it? But from that fact, like being one of these people, that people are like, "Hi, oh, Craig Silver," it's like, "Oh, well, what's he bring out next?" Like, do you feel any of that stuff? Do you feel the financial pressure, all that stuff as well? Oh well, look, I mean, Rhubarb was a very successful novel insofar as it sold really well. It's still in print. It still ticks over. Uh, it won awards, uh, and it afforded me the opportunity to to tour and connect with readers. It was an amazing opportunity and, and a beautiful thing to have happened to me. However, financially, I was still under a great deal of pressure, and you know, I I starved for over ten years to to get myself established uh, as a novelist. Things in that regard only really changed after Jasper Jones kind of broke and that story got translated, had the opportunity to be published in over a dozen countries worldwide and was adapted for stage and screen. And that really uh, turned things around for me to the extent that, you know, I could focus on writing full time. But up until that point, you know, I was still working on jobs and fighting for the time to write. In terms of whether or not I feel hectored by a the pressure of potentially disappointing hundreds of thousands of readers when I release a new novel. Uh, I don't want to only... phrase it like that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it only really occurs to me when I get asked questions like that. You know, it's uh, <laughs> it's an anxiety that tends to kind of attack you on the eve of a of uh, of a new release. The truth is that you know when I'm here sitting at my the same desk that I've always sat at, you try to displace all those elements that you can't control. 
notions of audience, criticism, publishing, all those externalities that in the moment don't actually help you navigate and develop a story. What you try to do is just simplify the process and, and just get back to basics and get back to that blank page and let a story come to you. It's a really humbling realisation when you accept that the writer doesn't really matter. All that matters is the story that you're trying to encourage to unravel through you Mm. and ultimately how a reader is going to connect to it. That's the relationship that matters the most. The, The writer is secondary to that. There's a really beautiful connection between this constellation of letters on the page and the authority that a reader gives to a book when they open it and breathe life into it. And a novelist can have all the intentions in the world and can try to guide a reader, but ultimately the personal and private and intimate uh, interpretation of a text is what matters the most. It's interesting you say because I guess this is going to be to kind of something else I was going to ask about, but I guess that is kind of the example where you, once you finish writing it, which is however you think it is. And firstly, I assume when you say you're thinking about the reader, you're not thinking about the reader in terms of pandering to a reader. You're just thinking about it in terms of trying to get across the story that you want to tell in a way that readers will be able to engage with it in a way that you would hope they would. But ultimately, you don't really know until it goes out there and then they do that. No, you don't. Look, the only reader that I can attend to is me. I suppose if I have any aspiration, it's to try to write the kind of book that were I to pick it up unsolicited off a bookshelf, it might be something that might resonate with me, something that I might enjoy and, and identify with. If you concern yourself with the various opinions of hundreds of thousands of different readers, you'd never write another word. You'd drive yourself <laughs> crazy, let alone the spectre of potentially disappointing all of them or you know, try to be so inclusive of so many different, uh, wildly different tastes and expectations of a novel the only thing that that i can attend to is my own personal intuition of what the key ingredients of a good story are and i suppose that speaks to to what i mean when i try to make my world smaller and to really narrow down the the focus of uh, what i'm working on that tends to have been how how it's worked best for me yeah, so I guess on that note, I um, one of the things I do ask, I do wonder about when writing something, you go into it, where does the story come from? Like, as in, because uh, I'm guessing, like, I'm assuming things like themes and ideas like that, you don't go in with a specific agenda, like, that you really want to tell. It's more the story that then the themes kind of come out from, or is it like you go in being like, no, nah, I want to make this point or that? Like, how do you kind of approach it in that sense? Yeah, in terms of theme, nothing is preordained. The story tells you what it is and what it wants to be. You know, you start with something very small that feels laden with potential. Something ignites your interest and you want to explore it. You want to chase it. You want to understand why it's occupying your thoughts and, you know, you want to learn why uh, it's it's sparked into life. From that point, you know, it's it's really delicate. You you nibble around the edges of it and you tease out little threads and you try to cast some light on it and you explore it. You let characters come to you and you start to map out the world that they're in and and why it is they're so fascinating to you. And that takes a lot of time. It's about trying to try to navigate through the noise to get to the same frequency as a story. And it takes a lot of patience. Uh, And it takes a lot of faith and and belief, I suppose. And that's what I mean when I suggest that you're acting on an instinct and you're acting on an intuition. 
the best way I can describe it to you, because it's not easy to, mm. to illustrate what the process is like, but the best way I can describe it to you is that it's a bit the same as the space that we occupy when we read. When we read, we abandon our own identities and we invite any number of other characters and identities to infiltrate our imaginations and, and we live through them. And we're spellbound by a story. We're mesmerised by it and we forget who we are, we forget what time it is and we forget where we are. We exist entirely in this sort of ephemeral dimension and a novelist has to try to get to that place, to that space, but we need to anchor ourselves sufficiently in the real world uh, to record it as it's mm. happening to us, you know, and it's a notoriously difficult place to get to. There's no map that takes us there. There's no reliable road that, that we can travel on to, to arrive back at this place. And so we tend to rely on little rituals and routines to get ourselves back there so that we can allow a story and its characters to come to us. And I suppose the skill and the craftsmanship of, of writing is about decoding what feels abstract it's about recognising what a story is and why it is, and it's the ability to, to capture that with language. And so to answer your question finally, <laughs> writing is about exploration. Every day you're trying to, to connect to this story and you wait for small discoveries and lucid revelations, which lets you sort of advance the story a little bit more and allows you to understand it a little bit better. And over time... Um, you capture it a little bit more, you understand your characters and you understand why this story wants to be uh, and what it might ultimately be about. And sometimes uh, it's not until you finish a draft that you recognise what themes you've been really exploring and what might ultimately give the story merit and meaning. And so it's a risk. It's always a risk to, to, to write a story. It's also why often... I don't feel as though I can adequately take credit for a story either because you feel as though it's happened to you. You feel as though it sort of always existed and you're a conduit for it. I'm always reminded of, when I try to describe this to people, of uh, when Paul McCartney wrote the song Yesterday, he dreamed it. He woke up and it was there. And, you know, he had the, he had the skill and the wherewithal to go to the piano and capture it, map it out, you know, layers of melody over a bass and a riff. But... He was convinced that it was an old standard, that it was a song that he'd heard before. And he kept playing it for other people, saying, where have I heard this song before? You know, what is it? <laughs> and, of course, it was his. But it, uh, to his mind, he'd been given it. It was something that just arrived to him. It's not something he worked for. And sometimes when writing feels really pure, when it feels honest and authentic, a novelist feels the same way. Mm. Oh, then I wish my dreams were that. <laughs> that talent. <laughs> Tell you what, but uh, it's funny you say that. Like, straight away, my thought goes to go hyper geeky now with some very uh, obscure philosophy thing. But the whole concept of the death of the author, and like, I, I, there's a whole thing of I've re I, I love this idea because it talks about how like the very idea of genius itself was considered back in the day not genius in terms of anyone smart. It's more just how well they're channeling the muses through them but you wouldn't actually give the person doing it that much credit because just like you wouldn't give their pen that much credit. Ultimately, they're just channeling something bigger through them. And I feel like 
there's more truth to that in some ways from looking at how writing works and stuff. A lot of times people aren't really sure, like not to discredit the work you're doing, obviously. You don't ultimately know. Like you are putting down something that's working right now, but yeah, that doesn't mean you have authority over it in any way. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's soothing to the ego to suggest that, you know, I bring these things to, in, into being and it's, and I'm, I'm always intellectually aware of what I'm doing, but uh, it's, it's not the case at all. There's nothing more humbling or terrifying than a blank page. And I think being a good writer is about, you know, a- a- accepting your humility and uh, being patient and determined. And it's about listening and being available and open. That tends to be when you know, the, the, the best ideas come to you and certainly the best or the most favorable conditions for creativity. Mm. My other thought goes with this is have you had parts you've gone down where it ends up being a point where you're like, oh, no, this isn't really working or like, oh, maybe I'm forcing this too much and you've had to just give up on like book plot ideas or whatever. You're like, nah, this just isn't working for me. Have you had things like that happen? Yeah, uh, look, if, if there's one benefit to, to being a novelist is that we typically fail in solitude. You don't often see the many aborted attempts. You don't see the relentless edits, the constant reworking, the million dead ends. I've had novels that I've lost. There are manuscripts in my bottom drawer that I just, that I lost the connection to. And, you know, I'm a very stubborn, determined person. And it's hard to accept uh, when, you know, a few years of your life has. I hesitate to describe it as a failure or that mm. it's come to nothing because every day that you're practicing your craft you is an opportunity to, to get better. But the fact that it hasn't been successful to the point where it, you've developed a story that other people can come to can be really heartbreaking, you know. Mm. And it takes a lot of courage and fortitude to accept when it hasn't worked. But, no, there's been a couple of big projects in my life that I've lost. I have a very faint glimmering pilot light of hope that, you know, they might find their way into into being in maybe some other format, you know, but mm. nurse doubts every day, you fail every day, you know, you lose contact with a story constantly and you rely on this very faint hope and faith and instinct that what you're working on matters and it has merit and it's worthy of your time and your passion. I suppose that makes those rare instances where, it does work all the more important. Yeah, it's earned. <laughs> it's really yeah, well earned. Yeah. You know, I'm just a genius. I write it down once and then send it off and it's great. The rest of the time I'm just chilling. Totally. <laughs> it's enjoying totally. Yeah. Well, I mean, I there are those stories out there, I suppose. You know, Harper Lee did just yeah. nail it on the first crack. And look, I like to think that she always wrote, that she kept writing. The same way that Salinger always wrote. He just didn't release those books. They're mm. And you spoke earlier about, you know, the temptation to posthumously rifle through an estate and, and release those books. Mm. The the one exception I'd probably, you know, wouldn't mind would be Salinger's many manuscripts. I think there are dozens of manuscripts that he just didn't release. You know, he wrote really? a lot of books. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's maybe if you had someone trusted to, yeah. They'll do it for the right reasons, I guess. That's the only thing. Yeah, let's go. Let's go with that. You know, let's uh, <laughs> let's abandon all his, uh, you know, his very clear and concise instructions, and just you know, for the benefit of humankind. Be, yeah. yeah, yeah. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. So even though we've now talked about how, yeah, you kind of let that stuff develop, I guess because I, I know I'd looked up some of your stuff beforehand, and it's interesting you chose To Kill a Mockingbird because of the clear similarities, I guess, with some of your style. Because I know you mentioned your um, Southern Gothic being an influence for you in your writing, which is essentially Ameri- the American South, and then those Gothic elements there. So, And I guess, yeah, I could sure I see that in what you kind of put out there with like, I mean, Jasper Jones and all, and all that stuff. And, and, and also the connection between that and Estrella is very clear. And I hadn't actually thought about that before. So yeah, a choice like Harper Lee's like a small town and obviously these racial undercurrents and stuff, and then being viewed for, through this protagonist who maybe has a degree of innocence to these wider issues. So I guess how much of that is like maybe intentional, but like, I know you've, you, you seem to have a focus on in your novels, protagonists who are in that kind of younger age bracket. Is that because of the idea of viewing the world in that way? And that offers obviously narrative elements for you? I suspect it might be a bit of both. In one regard, you get the story that you get given. And it just so happens that stories that have worked for me, uh, that I've seen all the way through, uh, have focused on narratives who are, who are younger. You know, I am fascinated by that period of our lives because it's so definitive. You know, everything is amplified because we're experiencing them for the first time. And we're seeing the world for what it is for the first time. Uh, it was certainly the case with, with Jasper Jones. You know, Charlie has that protective bubble of childhood very abruptly burst and he has to very quickly kind of catch up and understand what the world is like for other people and where he might fit into it, what is right and what is wrong, what is truly courageous all these aspects of of maturing and and coming of age, what he's ultimately grappling with. Honeybee's a little bit different. She hasn't had that protective bubble of childhood and and her story is about what benefits, protection and support can ultimately afford her. But it's still a very interesting lens through which to understand her experience and, and where she sits in the world. I think it affords a novelist a really interesting opportunity to to look at things objectively without those sort of layers of self-soothing lies that adults tend to placate themselves with and to look at things anew and to look at things in a really unguarded way, I think that affords a novelist a really rich and interesting opportunity. But with that said, you know, I, I've, I've written about 
lots of different characters of different experiences at all at different stages of their life. It just happens to be, you know, to date, the the people at the centre of those stories have been a bit younger. I was just going to say, yeah, with that, like, it's not to pigeonhole, because I was going to say, looking at your back catalogue of the books you've written, yes, you've got these themes which you can say are there. Like, I guess I want to say Australian, like, regional sort of vibe to it, although, I mean, Honeybee wasn't technically, like, a tiny town, I don't think. But, uh, uh, like, you've got that element. And, yes, you've got the protagonist being, like, of that kind of adolescent age bracket vaguely. But apart from that, they're actually pretty wildly different as well. Like I was going to say, like you've got the murder mystery almost of like the Jasper Jones and you've got like the coming of age sort of, I don't want to go too much into the plot of it, but although one person actually chose that as their favorite book on this podcast for Honey. Oh, wow. Honey so, yeah. Which I hadn't known about this former book of yours about the superhero, not superhero, but the, person, <laughs> the kid who thinks they're a superhero running around. And then of course the new book you've just released, Runt, which is about, again, very different. It seems a bit maybe slightly younger, but it was more of a fun adventure story almost rather than like an impacting family drama or a town unpacking its like views. So it's like there is quite a bit of variety in that, which is that an intentional choice or is that just, that's what interested you? Well, you're like, I don't, I don't want to do the same thing again. I'm going to go in a different direction. Yeah. I mean, look, there's, I think there's some thematic connective tissue that Mm -hmm. binds these stories together, but they're all very different books, very different voices, quite different structure. And I think it, it sort of heralds back to that notion that, for me at least, I have to work on the story that, that I stumble across. In the same way that I think musicians pluck songs from the ether, you know, you you might be playing an instrument just for the joy of it and you stumble across a couple of chords that seem to bind together and you get an instinct for what comes next. It might be unexplored terrain, but you chase it because you're interested in it. It has been the same for me. I mean, I'm personally interested in, in a diversity of, of books. I read pretty widely. You know, I don't have a narrow point of focus when it comes to my reading. And I think that my writing embodies that too. I suppose you just let yourself be open to, to various possibilities. You know, I never anticipated that <laughs> that a story like Runt would come along, but, you know, it, it has, and it was a real joy to, to work on it. I, I really loved it. I really delighted in bringing it to life but yeah it's it's a really different book to to what i've done previously yeah that's why that's why i want to make sure very clear of that to be like yeah there are similarities but yeah very different books you've done there but runt (laughs) um because i've I've only i haven't read it but like i've done a skim and quick look through it yeah it's it's very different in terms of style and everything from the stuff you've done before it reminds me it's very fun it seems like more than yeah yeah like it's straight away it's from the first page like ah okay i can see what kind of story this is going to be a fun time like as in it's just a moving along the characters like yeah so (laughs) i i have to mention the name of the villain in it is uh i i thought was very hilarious (laughs) just his name's earl robert baron it's like you've managed to put two landed titles in (laughs) (laughs) earl and baron that's impressive that's right right. (laughs) i'm guessing that was a choice (laughs) Yes, that was deliberate. There's another villain, actually. His name is Fergus Fink, and you know he comes from a long line of Finks, and he's just as <laughs> it's just as Finkish as you might imagine. Yeah, mm. yeah. No, I had a lot of fun writing it. It was a real joy. I think I, I I think I needed something fun. You know, I found myself pretty emotionally exhausted and wrung out uh, having written Honeybee, and you know I wrote this book in the middle of the pandemic. You know, when we're all isolated and locked in and nursing all kinds of anxieties. And so it was a comforting book to work on and it was a really lovely opportunity to be swept away, I suppose, and into something else. Mm. Again, because I haven't read also, you might 
disagree with this wildly, but I was, I was like, just the adventure and the moving forward of it. It sprung to my mind. I don't know why this connection happened, but there's another author, uh, Matthew Riley, who's done a hover car racer. Have you heard of that? Do you know that? Book? I have heard of it. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I haven't read it, unfortunately, but yeah, I'm aware of it. Yeah. 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 Just straight out, like the idea of like the race and the kids and they're trying to build it up and that stuff. Like I'm not saying it's direct comparison, but straight out, I was like, okay, I'm very up for this immediately. <laughs> so, so yeah, <laughs> look, honeybee to not go into too much detail, but yeah, it sounded like that would have been an intense book to write and to give it the justice that you would feel like you need to in the conversation I had with the other guest who chose that as a book, they actually gave me some details about the process you went through writing it to make sure the communities that you would touch upon, you had the right, I guess, in some ways to tell that story, which I agree with as well. As long as you do it the right way, anyone can tell any story essentially. So I can understand. So, so yeah, there was a bit of that relaxation with this one, having a bit more fun with it, I guess. So I can appreciate that. Jasper Jones, to go back to that for a second, the film, yeah, you wrote that. So talking about needing time off or intensity of writing, you're involved in the writing of the screenplay for that. Yeah. Now, what was that like? Was that relaxed? Was that intense? Was it easier? Was it harder? How was that experience? Oh, it certainly wasn't relaxed. There is an intensity and a responsibility underpinning work in film. There's a lot riding on it. There's a substantial budget. There's livelihoods of crew members are, you know, many dozens of people who have dedicated themselves to writing a story, coupled with the fact that it was my first screenplay. So I wrote the shooting script to Jasper and very much in the deep end and, and learning very rapidly. But fortunately, I had some wonderful tutelage, principally from uh, our esteemed director, Rachel Perkins. Our producers were wonderfully supportive and, you know, very accomplished in their own right. There was the previous work done by a, a brilliant screenwriter, Sean Grant, and I, I loved it. Uh, I, I have a very accidental film career. I didn't anticipate working on it to the uh, extent that I did, but I don't regret a moment of it. You know, I had the opportunity to to be on set virtually every day, to be part of the post-production. I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to describe. It was a remarkable period of my life and the opportunity to see, you know, some brilliant, iconic Australian talent bring characters to life that first emerged in my thoughts was just extraordinary. It was, it was wonderful. And so film is something I'm passionate about and dedicated to. And so I think I'll continue to work in that field for a long while yet. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's funny you say that. So I think people who don't know how film works might be surprised by the writer being needed on set every day. But I think like I've done a few things in that as well. And people don't realize the fact that like there's rewrites going on, constantly like, That's right. yeah. it's crazy like as in the day the day before you were getting the script for the next day like so but and you would have been fiendishly working to be on top of that as it goes along because obviously as the voices develop and as the ideas change in the film so yeah right well there's any number of things that can go wrong as you know you might lose access to a certain location for example and so you've got to very quickly adapt to that find some way around it very rapidly write a solution Budget might not afford the opportunity to to capture a particular scene, and so you've got to somehow connect, you know, story beats, and you've got to come up with novel and clear ways to to connect two events. For example, you just don't know. You've got to be really adaptable you've, in order to work in film, and uh, there's a lot riding on it. There's there's not a lot of time, and there's not a lot of money, but there's a lot of pressure, and so it's exciting. It's it's a very different way for a novelist to work. 
Well, yeah, I was going to say, like, I didn't realize you, you had been that directly involved because I do know how intense it can be. So yeah, it's, it is probably about as far as you can get from writing a novel in terms of like how on the fly it is, how like locked in it is as well. Because once you've written it, it's shot. It's like, okay, that's moving on to the next thing. And like, yeah. you have to be constantly every day just updating. It's wow. Yeah. I didn't realize you were that directly involved all the way through. Yeah. And the steepest learning curve was learning to appreciate working in a collaborative atmosphere, you know, because up until that point, I've been working principally in solitude. And so trusting what each department are going to bring to a certain scene was something I had to very quickly appreciate. Uh, And it wasn't difficult given the expertise of our personnel. But that's also, it's, for me, it was one of the challenges, but also one of the joys of, of working in film is to deeply appreciate what other people can can bring to a film. Mm. And that feeling of, uh, I think, the collaboration as well would be a treat, I feel, after such a solo enterprise that is writing to be some, somewhere where everyone's in it together <laughs> for good and for real. Yeah. And, uh, it can feel yeah. quite amazing, I think. You do have this incredible camaraderie. You go through it together. You face any number of hurdles that able to be readily anticipated you don't know what's going to come your way on any given day and so yeah you really do bond as a team it's a really wonderful thing to be a part of mm. from what i've seen of it it's a uh, yeah, it can be very exciting and yeah a journey like a project you are yeah very united with everyone there afterwards. totally so, yeah. yeah to go back to the books including like runt as well and i guess to tie it in with your book of choice uh to kill a mockingbird i know the um the themes develop naturally, as you were saying, from what you're writing. So obviously, To Kill a Mockingbird, we've all studied, most of us have studied in school. We know what the themes are in that and kind of what it's kind of actually about, although it's not really too subtle at the same time with what it's about. The most recent one, Runt, uh, again, from my reading of it, it does seem to be kind of about this landed type and their kind of <laughs> influence on the regional towns and that kind of negative impact, I guess, on these kind of communities of one person kind of amassing too much and not even caring as well, like kind of just this clinical approach, that sort of stuff. Did that develop from kind of near the start? You're like, no, this is kind of what I want to have as a subtext in this book or was it towards the end? Or Because I know that's you're talking my language with a topic like that because I do think it's an issue which isn't going away and Australia is kind of gone in the wrong direction with in recent years. Yeah, certainly part of it. You know, it was, it mm. was, it was very clearly what was putting these people under pressure. So Runt tells the story of an 11-year-old girl called Annie Shearer and she lives in the country town of Ups and Downs uh, on her parents' sheep farm. And she has a proclivity for fixing things. She wears an old leather tool belt with her everywhere she goes. And she's quite a solitary character. She's very comfortable in her own company. But she does have a best and only friend who is a stray dog that she rescued. And his name is Runt. And they're a very formidable team. Uh, the two of them adore each other. And Runt obeys Annie's every whim. And on account of his years on the streets evading capture, Runt is now a very spry and agile and athletic dog. And so it makes them a very formidable team when it comes to rounding up their sheep, which are constantly getting out in search of greener pastures, which happen to be across the road in the vast estate of Mr. Earl Robert Barron. Now, Earl's estate is so lush on account of the fact that he has dammed the river and he's kept the the water uh, for himself. And as a result, the town of Ups and Downs is in a state of decline and decay. Earl's, I suppose, 
uh, defined by his avarice. He's a collector. He collects everything from Rembrandt's to Shakespeare's quills to Freud's couch to Shackleton's lamps. He surrounds himself with these appurtenances of, of history uh, to make himself feel a bit more important, but mostly to prevent other people from gazing upon them and appreciating them. And as a result of blocking the uh, access to the town's water, the good people of ups and downs have to sell up. They're under a great deal of financial pressure. And the person who's buying their properties is Earl. He's collecting them. He's collecting their lives and their histories. And the property that he uh, covets the most belongs to Annie Shearer uh, and her family. And so given that she has a proclivity for fixing things, uh, Annie sets about wanting to save her family farm. However, it's a problem that's a bit too big for her tool belt. And she stumbles across a solution at a local fair, at the Woolorama Show. And it happens to be when she walks in front of a canine agility course competition. And she sees all these dogs jumping through hoops and over hurdles and through tunnels. And she recognizes that she and Runt might have a competitive advantage. And so she enters. And when she does so, uh, she comes to learn that were they to do well enough, they might qualify for the very prestigious Crumpets Dog Show in London, <laughs> whose grand championship offers a cash prize that would more than capably solve the Shearer family uh, financial <laughs> woes. And so I knew that Earl and his greedy ambitions uh, were going to put Annie under pressure and he was going to provide you know, reason and sustenance for uh, the story's plot, I suppose. In terms of theme, I wasn't entirely certain where it was going to go. There's something quite existential about Earl uh, and his approach. And, you know, there's clearly commentary about environmental policy and water policy, corruption and capitalism at play. Although, you know, it's important, particularly when you're framing a story for the immersion of a younger audience, it's important not to be too didactic in your approach to leave enough in the margins for, for readers to draw their own conclusions. And so it wasn't necessary for me to disclaim too much about what's behind the real life intersections of Earl. It's all there and uh, readily identifiable to, to most readers. But yes, I, I knew what Earl represented and, and having grown up in the country, I'm keenly aware of the extent to which we live at the whims of elemental forces and how deeply lives are affected by policy decisions that, you know, impact all those ingredients and elements that we need to survive out there. Mm. To go back to the didactic point for a second, it's just like saying it's a wonderful life, that absolute classic movie. Very easy to read that and see exactly what kind of stuff it's saying, even though it's weird that it's so popular considering how anti-capitalist that one is in quite a lot of ways. <laughs> Such an American classic. So I guess one last thing, I guess, because we've gone on for very long, which I appreciate. In terms of the regional town stuff that you kind of grew up in and you're saying you're seeing the impact of that from the element nature and all that, was that giving a voice to these places because that's where you were from and you felt like it wasn't maybe seen as much as you like or you just, again, naturally came out anyway? I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah, I, I, a lot of it's predicated by instinct. You know, a lot of it is informed by the experiences, um, the history that shaped me. I'm also a very parochial West Australian writer. And so the opportunity to, to capture that landscape and the characters of these towns is difficult to pass up. It's, it's something I am really proud to write about. 
So yeah, I, I think it's I think it's all things blended together. With a story like Runt, it was certainly a lot of my own history underpinning those pages. We didn't necessarily have a wealthy power broker living across the road who was uh, choking our water supply, but you know I grew up on an orchard in, in dwelling up and uh, you know we were struggling. And I remember being quite young and you know being woken up one night by my mother doing the books on an old accounting machine with the old receipts. And it was you know quite a loud contraption. And I remember sneaking out and sort of just absorbing her stress and her anxiety and her worry and a little bit like Annie, wishing that I had the, the wherewithal to, to try and fix our predicament. And so I suppose there might be a little bit of revisionist history in the pages of Run, but you know, in terms of capturing a rural experience, it's been a big part of who I am. And uh, it's an abiding interest for me as well. Mm. No, look, it's a distinct thing to talk about as well. I think that appeals to a lot of people and to try to smoothly tie it in one more time, you know, and then just like to kill a mockingbird, that kind of insight into these towns almost gives an avenue for more pure themes of like what humans are and how they look at things and all that sort of stuff. So I think it helps in that way as well. Everything's bigger out in the outback (laughs) in terms of that stuff, you know what I mean? So, all right. Anyways, we've got a... Very long, which I really appreciate. One last thing I'll ask is uh, what's next for Mr. Sylvie? I know I'm sure now you've just finished his book, you'll be dying to write the next one immediately. <laughs> yeah, uh, look, uh, I'll be touring Runt for a little while longer. Next year, we're going to start developing Honeybee as a six-part series. We're fairly well advanced with the Runt film treatment. So I was going to say, this is like got a film treatment written all over it. Because <laughs> you know, yeah. the girl, the outbug, it is, it, you can see the movie already. <laughs> totally, totally. So yeah. we're having some promising developments there. And if I can scrape up enough time, I'll get to work on my next novel, which at this stage looks like it'll be a Western set in Western Australia and the goldfields at the turn of the 20th century. Oh, wow. You really like changing it up every time. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, I'll, I'll put links to all of your stuff. I guess uh, thank you so much for being on the show, Craig. Thanks for having me, George. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's sanspantsplus.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.